what I would do before would be to come in here and to have all these ideas about how I was supposed to show up and how much energy I was supposed to have and how I was supposed to talk and be. And I would try to force myself into that. And I would cause a, a subjugation of myself. And what is different today is I, I, I was sitting down waiting for this to start. And I said, I'm as available as I am today. Funnily enough, when I do that, I become more available because I'm making space for myself. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Welcome back. It's so good for me to be back, and I'm welcoming you back as well, our, our faithful listeners. And if any of you are new listeners, welcome to the show. This is a podcast on emotional sobriety that Tom Rutledge and I started some time ago with Patrick Newman, our producer. And today I'm really excited. Uh, someone who I've grown very close to over the years, uh, Brian Lutz, uh, a licensed psychotherapist in uh, Manhattan Beach, California, is joining us today to talk about his experience with emotional sobriety. Now, we'll get to that in one minute, but I just wanted to mention that Tom is away today. He's chasing his horses somewhere um, on his big you know, ranch in, in Tennessee, and he will be joining us again next week. So Tom sends his best regards to all of you and uh, looks forward to joining us next week. So Patrick, here we are. How are you doing today? I want to check in with you before we bring in Brian here. Oh, I'm doing uh, really well. Um, my uh, my sister, uh, who has been uh, sort of estranged uh, from the family um, for the last several years, invited me to see her new house in near Nashville, and uh, it was just great to get that text from her. I think I might have an opportunity to go with uh, my aunt later this year and uh, kind of reconnect with her. But uh, it's uh, just uh, been a wonderful. Um, this year has been kind of a lot of things coming back in my life uh, after a period of drought that I'm very fortunate, uh, fortunate to be going through this this time. And, uh, you know, I've got plenty to talk about in these kinds of circles. So that's well, another. Look, yeah. you, what, what, what you're sharing with us, and I think if people have, have followed your story, your recovery journey, is that, you know, one of the things that happens during our illness is we alienate a lot of people that care about us and love us. And part of the journey of recovery, as Bill said, when he talked about step 12 and it's kind of summarizing what the steps do is when he said that, you know, the steps, if you practice these steps in your daily life, that we and those uh, about us begin to achieve emotional sobriety. So what it tells me is that the family starts to heal. Even if they're not in therapy, and this is something that Bowen saw, as soon as somebody makes a change in a family, it creates a change in other people too. 
and that's what's happening. You know, you're, you know, I know a little bit of, of the story for you and you've been estranged from your sister for a while. And look at this man here, here she's invites you to her house. And, and now you're, you're starting to put all those pieces back together. You're reuniting with your family in a really good way. So that's great, man. I'm glad to hear that. And I can hear in your voice how good you feel about it. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and it's uh, I'm real happy we have Brian back today. Oh, uh, well, that's a good segue, isn't it, Patrick? Because, you know, Brian, you know, as we before the show came on, we talked about, well, how where would you like to go with this today? And uh, you mentioned to me that you'd like to talk about some experience you've had recently and how emotional sobriety relates to that. So welcome to the show, Brian. I hear you were here with Tom last week, and it's good to have I didn't, you back. I didn't expect to be back so soon. <laughs> well, listen, man, you're a popular guy uh, amongst our circles. Here. <laughs> you, you know that in terms of the Thursday night meeting you've been supporting since we've developed it. And you've got quite a fan base in that Thursday night meeting. And I'm a big fan of yours. And I know Patrick is. He talks to me about it a lot. And I know Tom is. So welcome back, Brian. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. So I was, I was thinking about coming in today, you know, in, in keeping our talk centered around emotional sobriety to me is is just, you know, one of the things that I learned from you in, in, in our training and in my learning from you is, is how helpful it can be to see what like a tangible example of a concept is. And so I think that, you know, we talk a lot about ideas, which is it's, it's necessary to understand things. But then the integration is always the challenge, I think. And so what I, you know, in the, in the Gestalt training, it, it's, it's the integration comes in, the demonstrations and, and observing, you know, you talk about an idea and then you show what it looks like. And so, you know, that was something that to me, I thought seemed important in that, that I was hoping to be able to bring forward. So well, let's tell, that. let's tell our listeners what the Gestalt training is, because they, because, you know, we talk about it. We know exactly what that means, but, yeah. but most people know, probably don't. It's like, blah, 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 blah. yeah. So <laughs> how would you describe it? I'd love to hear how you describe it. Well, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll say it in a way that if, if people had really not, not a lot of information about it. So Gestalt psychology is a, is a modality of psychology created in I think the 50s and 60s by a couple people, Fritz Perls being one of the big figures of it. And um you know, Alan, you uh, run a workshop. It's a training program, a multiple year training program for therapists and people who work with people to, to learn how do you do gestalt work with their clients. But um, it's so much more than that. At least my experience has been because uh, the way that you put it, that makes the most sense to me was that you can, uh, the defining feature of a gestalt therapist is that they practice the principles in their, in their life, right? You can see it in, in the way they live their life, I think is the way you said it. And so a big piece of Gestalt work is authenticity and congruence between what you're saying and, and how you're working with people and, and, and how you live your life. And so um, the, the Gestalt training program is, is uh, it's a way of, of learning these concepts, figuring out how to integrate them for yourself and then figuring out how to bring them to other people in a meaningful way, hopefully. Um, and that's done through didactic lectures. It's, it's, uh, and then also demonstrations, live demonstrations with uh, volunteer clients who come in and have actual live sessions on the spot with either you or, 
or Roger and uh, who's uh, also from the Thursday night and uh, with, with sort of a, a gestalt focus and Roger brings in his piece with somatic work too. Um, but and then, we, and then we debrief it. We talk about the yes. session or, or how it touches anybody in the training group personally and do some work around that if, if that's appropriate at that time. Yeah, it's quite a it's quite a wonderful training program. I I, I started I, I experienced that in being in Walter's two year training program, and um, before COVID, it was a f- six hour a day program. We met at my office. We were, we were heading to your place eventually. We were talking about moving to your new house and stuff like that. But then COVID hit, and we've modified it now so it meets once a month on a Saturday, usually the third Saturday from 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time to 1 p.m. Um, Eastern Standard Time is 1 to 4 p.m. And uh, it's it's really, I mean, I love doing a training program. I love seeing, like, your development has been phenomenal. You know, I, I will say you are one of my best students <laughs> that you have. You have really taken to the the principles of gestalt therapy, the philosophy, and I, a lot like like what I experienced, you saw how nicely it fit with recovery. And, you know, I see that. I see how well you've integrated into your personal life and into your professional life. And look, man, you're very good. Your practice in a very short time, you know, you're as busy as you want to be right now, and, and which is a testimony to your skills, Brian. Well, it's a blessing. That's for sure. I mean, I, and I credit so much of it to the training. I mean, I, I remember so vividly the first time at, uh, at Rebos, <laughs> the first time you invited me in and I came in and, and, and Rebos was an outpatient treatment program that we were doing the training at. Yeah. I, sometimes I just, I, I gotta, I gotta remember yeah. to keep things. Well, in I, I do. I'll take care of that. You tell the story <laughs> Thank you. and I will narrate it. So people yeah. know. No, I remember, I remember going there and just being so uncomfortable and so afraid and so insecure and not knowing how to keep things personal. You know, my feedback ended up being centered around other people or what I thought about them and nothing about what it meant to me. And what the reason that I have attached so much to gestalt work and and to emotional sobriety and just recovery in general is because I have tangibly felt what the possibilities are. And I know there are endless more waiting in front of me, but, you know, I, I had a, a blessed life growing up in a lot of ways, but a very painful one too. just my internal experience, despite everything being okay, or, you know, mostly, mostly anyways, on the outside, I, I had a really hard time. And when, as soon as I started getting exposed to this stuff, it started just, I started breaking free from all of that. And I mean, it, it is incredible for me to look back at, at my, just what's happened to me over the last five years from when I started doing all this stuff to now it's, I think I'm, I would say I'm a different person, but I'm more myself than I've ever been. Yeah. It's a funny way to say it. You're different, but you're different in the fact that you're more yourself than you were before. I mean, that's, which is an interesting way of thinking about how different you are. Well, and it's it's kind of a it's a testament to me to how encumbered I was by my rules, uh, my my projections, my expectations of myself and other people, and and how off balance my center of gravity 
was that is, you know, it's, it's been peeling all of that back and, you know, realizing that there wasn't anything wrong with me in the first place. I was, I'm, I'm fine just the way I am, but I didn't used to feel that way. So yeah, that's it's why it's a betrayal of ourselves, isn't it? That moment that we adopt the idea that I need to be somebody other than I am to be okay. And I was talking about that. I was sharing in a meeting last night, Brian, and I was saying, my God, that was the beginning of the end for me. I mean, that's really when my life became unmanageable. You know, I can pin it down. Now, I don't know when that decision was. And I do now, as I think about it, I'm not so sure it was a, a one moment decision. I think it was an unfolding of a consciousness that became more and more committed to this idea that if I could be somebody other than I was, that I'd be okay. And as that became more and more real, I think I became sicker and sicker because I, I lost you know, that distance between who I really am and who I was trying to be got greater and greater and greater. Yeah, I was just talking to my parents. They're, they're pretty, they, they, they like this stuff too, particularly my dad, he's in recovery. He, you, you, Alan, you know him well, he knows, he knows you well. He comes to the Thursday night. And so I, I love, I love talking about this stuff with him. And that was really what helped cement a lot of these ideas for me is that when I went to treatment and, uh, early on in my recovery, we would just talk about this stuff. So we've continued that. And so I was talking to my parents last night about this exact topic of what happens when you, when you get the idea, when I got the idea that the way that I was, wasn't okay. And that I had to be different to be okay. And it was so, I, I, I can actually pinpoint it. I can remember when it first happened and I was talking about my experience. And when I was a, a young kid, I was so happy. I mean, my grandma nicknamed me Sunshine. She called me Sunshine. Just I tear up a little bit as I say that. Wow, man. That was so meaningful for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I was so happy. And, and, uh, and everything wasn't perfect, but I, I was, it was like innocent, you know, and naive. And, but it was, it was uh, wow, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Well, really look, you me. were you were seen and celebrated. I yeah. mean, that's what it was. I mean, she saw into you and, and, and she celebrated who she saw. Yeah. And, you know, those are the two things, man. I mean, that to me is the greatest pain is, you know, that when I look back at those moments, especially after my father passed away, which, you know, my history when I was 11, I wasn't seen. And forget about the celebration. You can't be celebrated unless you're seen first. So that's not going to happen. But that's it's an incredibly powerful event as soon as you're seen. And well, it's, it's interesting when you put it that way. And then the exact opposite is, is if you have an experience where you put yourself out there and, and you get the opposite response, right? It's, it, if you, I think it's different if you can tolerate it and not take it personal. But I, I didn't have that ability when it happened to me. Well, when we're kids, we don't have that ability. Yeah, I think that that's the, the thing to keep in mind. We, we talk about this stuff from an adult perspective. But when we're kids, we're very vulnerable to these dynamics that are going on in our families yeah. and in our culture and in our, in our experiences at school. Yeah. Well, that's where it happened to me. So I, I remember I had this group of uh, friends in, in elementary school that I connected to, and they were my buds. We were so close. 
And, and I remember from fifth grade to sixth grade, we switched from elementary school to middle school. And over that summer, I didn't see them because we were, you know, doing our family things, whatever. And I happened to uh, be, be introduced to my love of video games. That was when I first started playing video games. I, cause I was a big athlete up until that point, I played all, all different sports. And I started moving away from that and I found video games and I was playing with my brother, my old brother and my friends, we were having so much fun. And I remember going to school, sixth grade, I see all these guys that I know, and we, you know, what you do over the summer, what, and I was so excited to talk about how much fun I had over the summer playing these games. I remember it was Diablo two is what I was playing. <laughs> it's like this masterpiece of a game. And I remember so clearly the difference, the split that had happened between me and, and these guys or they, I got into video games. They got into surfing, water polo, junior guards, and girls. And I was not cool, you know, video games at that time. I think now they're a little bit more acceptable. Back then when I was growing up, they were not very cool. And I was immediately aware of when I would talk about them, I would be met with not like, it wouldn't, I wouldn't get made fun of, but it was, it was silence and lack of interest. And, and disconnection. And I, I started seeing that whenever I talked about these things, it meant so much to me, it, it didn't work out very well. And I remember, and I stopped and those guys, we grew apart really quickly. I stopped being friends with them. And I spent the next six years of my life, very, very lonely. And I just had so much trouble connecting with people because I started getting these ideas in my head that there's these certain aspects of myself that I, I love and I'm very happy about, but I can't show them to other people because it doesn't go well. It doesn't, they don't take it well and, and, and they're going to reject me. Um, you know, but it was, a, it's a, it's been a pretty painful solution because uh, I ended up, uh, I, I guess I'd call it hiding in plain sight. I tried to become invisible in certain ways from like, it's like a, like a, a sheet of paper. If you look at it sideways, it's, you can't see it. And if you turn it up, so it's kind of like that where I was there, but I wasn't because I kept so much of myself back and I just became terrified of people and, and, and being seen for what I was and, and who I was. And, and that really did continue up until like surprisingly recently just being terrified of people. But anyways, I just, I was thinking about the, exactly what you were saying last night. Can't pinpoint it. I, that's when it started for me. Wow. That's when I stopped being sunshine. Yes. And then when did alcohol and other drugs come into the scene for you? Se well, I was 17. It was, I was uh, like my, I guess it, it was like the start of my junior year of high school. <laughs> And I, I remember I, I, uh, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was 15. And, and basically the you know, feedback I got from doctors is just don't drink alcohol because the, the way that your, your liver handles uh, glucose regulation and, and then when it's processing alcohol, it, ca it, it can't do glucose production and regulation. And so it causes a lot of blood sugar problems, drinking alcohol for, for type one diabetics. So that way I just, I left that off the table for me for, uh, you know, for then. And, and I started uh, smoking weed when I was 17. And I remember that was the first time I really had an experience of freedom. And I remember going to school the next day. I actually talked to that kid that I, that same one that from, from elementary school that I 
uh, grew apart from. I saw him one day and we didn't talk often, but uh, you know, connected real quick. And and I was, I remember the conversation I was telling him, I found the answer. I was like, I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's incredible what I've just discovered. It like, it, there's, there's freedom there. Like all the voices in my head, like all this stuff, yeah. all these ways that, that I, that I, my discomfort is just washed away. Yeah. And I was excited about it. And I remember his reaction to me. He looked at me and he said, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell are you talking about? I get what he was saying now. It was, it was, he was aware of something I didn't see. Um, but that, but that was the, but that freedom was so powerful. That's exactly what I experienced when I had my first drink. That moment I was free and I could be myself and be okay being myself. Yeah. Now it was artificially induced, of, of course, from the alcohol, but that's the function it played for me. Well, and it, it is a quite a powerful feeling. At least it has been, you know, as as terrible as the subjugation of the self is, is, is how wonderful that freedom is. That's exactly true. That's well said, Brian. Say that again. Let everybody really listen to what Brian's saying. As powerful as, the as terrible as the subjugation right. of the self is, is how powerful and wonderful the freedom is. That's right. That's yeah. right. Freedom from the bondage of self. I mean, that becomes, that is the solution. And that is what emotional sobriety is. Uh, look what I, I remember you gave this to me. I don't know yeah. if you can read it. Yeah, it's, read it. Cause they this isn't going to be a video. So people. Oh, this, okay. I thought it was a video. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, narrate it then. I remember um, for just uh, most people probably know, but for those who don't, Alan, you know, you were a huge figure in me getting sober and, and getting me plugged into all this stuff. And it means so much to me. And I remember I was in your office one day in Hermosa Beach at 2200 PCH. I, I drove by that the other day and I almost teared up. That place means so much to me, that office. Um, um, yeah. A lot of amazing stuff happened there, didn't Oh, yeah. My, my life changed yeah. there. So, but uh I remember one day I was in your office and I saw you had a, a box of pins, like, like the kind you pin on your shirt um, with the little clasp on back. So I'm holding one in my hand and there was going to be an, a, an AA conference. I think it was in the international conference. That's right. In Minnesota or Chicago or something. It could be in or, Detroit, Michigan. That, that's what it was. And you had a bunch of pins made for the conference that you were going to be handing out. And I saw one. And it's so cool. It's blue and white. And there's a, there's a bird or a bird-like figure in the center, like almost like angel wings. And then at the top, it says true independence of spirit and emotional sobriety. And I thought that to me really captures what emotional sobriety is all about. At least for me, what it means to me is true independence of my spirit and freedom from the bondage of self and the subjugation of the self and the, and the, and the hatred of myself that I've had for so long. And yeah. that's such a terrible way to feel all that stuff. It's been it really and, is, and, man. It's... But that's why it's so, this is so meaningful to me. And I couldn't imagine making anything else the focus of my life because I, I really do think, and I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that this, I think is the answer to a lot of problems that we're running into as a society and as a people. 
Yes. So yeah, I just want to do whatever I, I can to get this stuff out there because it's well, Look what it's done for me. I mean, well, geez. I appreciate that, and I I really appreciate the the spirit that you're bringing to this conversation today, Brian. So, so now now bring us to this, like you said, that you know these are not just theoretical ideas for you. You know, they they have to be lived. They have to be integrated. Yeah. So, what's happened the last few months? You said you wanted to share some of yeah what's going on, and I think this is a a good time to maybe bring that in. Well, in uh, so I, I hit five years sober in late January, um, yeah. just this couple months ago. Um, Congratulations! That's a cool minds milestone. And, and my uh, floor, my my fiance and my family threw a party for me. They came over and they brought me dinner. And they were, I, I remember they were talking to me. And, and my mom was asking me. She's like, "Oh, how does it feel? I mean, you're a different person." And I remembered when she asked me, I. I met her with almost like an indifference. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I could see she was, she, she knows me more, more than anybody else, I think. And she could see something was a little off. And I didn't know it yet because I, I still do have, have trouble being connected to my experience and, and tracking what's happening to me and what it means to me. But, um, you know, I started going down this path that that I think could really, I mean, one of, one of the only ways I think could really describe it would be just a, a, deep, a deep depression and sort of an existential crisis. And, and, you know, I, for the first time in my recovery was not feeling good, not feeling excited. And it was, it, I was really scared actually. I mean, when I was talking to clients that are suicidal and what they're saying is making too much sense to me and I'm connecting, I'm connecting with it too much. Yeah. And that was my red flag of like, why the hell is, you know, what is, what is this meaning to me that when people are talking about ending your life, I'm like, yeah, I kind of get it. Yeah. That's then that's when I was like, Oh, Holy shit. There's something, this is not good. Like what, what is going on here? And, and basically I just, I started losing interest in almost everything in my life. I started really pulling back from people and from relationships and from work. And these are all the things that mean everything to me. And so that's a, that's a pretty big statement. And I started getting very focused and interested in things that had nothing to do with other people. So the two things that I became fixated on were video games and baking and cooking is things that I can do by myself and I don't have to deal with anybody else. I knew I didn't feel okay, but I didn't understand what was happening. And I was afraid and, and, and really concerned. Um, but what I was able to do with, with these ideas and, and, and these concepts was to look at this as this isn't a bad thing that's happening to me right now. There, these are signals that my, my biological wisdom inside of me is telling me that there's there's a problem with how I'm I'm living my life and or a bunch of them even there's a problem with how I'm connecting to reality and it isn't working for me and so then I become unhappy you know and I and I start it, it, my 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 body created a crisis for me my spirit created a crisis for me and so I was given the opportunity to take a look at all this stuff and, and to see what was going on and what were these signals saying and, and, and what could I do with it? And so over the next couple months, I, I spent a lot of time and a lot of energy instead of being alarmed and scared. And for, oh, I was all that too, but I, I tried to bring my attention to what can I get out of this and what's this saying about me? And what I was able to figure out was 
how I was failing to care for myself in a lot of different uh, domains of my life that I was doing a lot of different things. And this is a pattern that I've fallen into in the past. And I thought I had gotten my arms around it, but it snuck back up on me, which is, I just, I don't take care of myself in, in relationship to other people. I start doing too much for other people. I, I stop paying attention to what I want and what I'm interested in and, and having any respect for myself. And so, you know, I got clients I'm seeing that aren't paying and I'm like, ah, whatever, you know, I'll get it somewhere down the line. I don't really care. And, you know, I'll see these people for free and these ones for lower than I want to see. So there's a bunch of it that was focused around money and, and other ones is just people I'm working with. that isn't a fit. And I keep working with them instead of dealing with it and saying, look, you know, this isn't working for me. And so I wasn't, I wasn't bringing myself into my work and, 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 you know, with the, with the principles of, of Gestalt psychology, it was just so, it was, it was really incongruent, really inauthentic of me, how I was showing up and it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. Um, but I was doing it long enough where I, I started thinking that it was therapy in my work that I, it wasn't working for me, but it was really, it's how I'm showing up and how I was failing to include myself. Yeah. Wow. God, what a wonderful description of how to face a personal issue and unravel and unpack the meaning of it. And like what you're telling people, it just did. It wasn't a, a spontaneous insight. You worked with it, man. You had to chew it up for a while and digest it before you got the clarity that you have right now. Well, and it's still unfolding, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's been about six months since that really started. And I would say that on a, on an almost daily basis or a weekly basis, I come up with some new piece that I can add to it that I, I can understand it on a, it's like an onion, like Shrek. I can understand it on a deeper level and, and it just keeps adding pieces to it. And, and it, it, it adds a lot of depth to, you know, it's like, I found this and this is something that I learned from you. And I think it came from Walt, which is that to really understand my experience, I have to be able to describe it. I have to find the words for it. And if I don't, it's just this kind of amalgam or like this, like it's like ditto from Pokemon, this like blob yeah, it's of, amorphous. of experience. Yeah, it's amorphous. It doesn't. Very, have... That's the word I was looking for. Right. There you go. Amor amorphous. It's amorphous shape. And as soon as I can figure out the words and, and I can describe it. And, and so you, you got to name it to tame it. Yeah. Um, and well, let's just mention who Walt is. Cause a lot of people yeah. heard through here, heard you throw Walt in Walt Kempler. Yeah. Dr. Walter Kempler was a psychiatrist. And he was one of the pioneers in Gestalt therapy. He was what we would call the second generation of Gestalt therapists. And he, he trained very closely with Fritz early on and then took those ideas and then now developed a, was a pioneer in Gestalt therapy, which we call relationally based Gestalt therapy. And he really, really brought the principles of Gestalt therapy to relationships, especially with couples and families. And he was a master clinician, brilliant man. I was fortunate to be with him for a couple decades. And he gave me so much. In fact, my first book that I don't talk about much, 
Patrick mentioned this to me before. It's called Love Secrets Revealed. That whole book was dedicated to what I learned from Walt Kempler. That was your first book? Yep. First book, Love Secrets Revealed. Wow. That's one of my favorites. I didn't realize that was your first book. First book. I wouldn't have guessed by the content of it. It was, it's yeah. a... I know it's, it's amazing how <laughs> well that content still holds up with all the things I talk about today. That's what I'm saying. And, and I, and I love the relationship focus on it too. And, and, and that's, that's a really it's special really, one. It's, it's a very, very good book. And, 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 you know, and I, like I said, I really, really give Dr. Kempler all the credit for all of the ideas in that book. You know, you know, I give myself a little credit for putting it together in a good way and communicating them. But, you know, he really had a way. And this is what the exciting thing is for me with Gestalt therapy and recovery and especially emotional sobriety. Everything he talks about is emotional sobriety. That that, as he said it, that that he had one great line in his book called Principles of Gestalt Family Therapy. That separation is not a disruption of a connection. It's just another dimension. And he was talking about a differentiated stance. And oftentimes, you know, and he's the one that he really introduced this whole idea of all these rules that get in our way of functioning that demand other people to do for us what we're not doing for ourselves. So there's such a wonderful, wonderful fit between Gestalt therapy and the work that you and I have done and in, in talking about emotional sobriety and really bringing that to the forefront of, of, of recovery, which I appreciate you supporting me in doing and doing and helping me do. And, and you as well, Patrick, I mean, you know, we've really been bringing this concept of emotional sobriety to the recovery community and to other professionals. Yeah. It's so important. I, I think it's, it is essential. It's a big missing piece and there's a void. And, there is you know, a missing piece. And, you, you know, your description of what you're going through that's continuing to unfold is such a good example of what emotional sobriety looks like in action. Yeah. I was I was talking to my uh, my uncle. He's the same age as me, but he's my uncle. I've got a funny family tree. Um, but we were talking about. Uh, there's this new video game that came out a couple, like a month or two ago, and, and it's taken over my life. I finally beat it like on uh, Friday. So You did beat it Friday. Oh Which God. one is it? What's the game? It's the called Elden Ring. I, Patrick, I'm sure you're familiar. Yeah, I knew that would be the one. It is, it's, it is uh, so powerful. <laughs> With the hold that that game took over me, it's, it was a little scary how much I lost myself in it, but it was a lot of fun. And so he's the only other person I knew that has played it all the way through. So we, we haven't talked in, in a while, but we talked for three hours straight and I could have talked for three more. I was having so much fun talking to him, but you know, we were talking about our experience with losing ourselves in the game and how much it took over our lives and how much it impacted us and, and how we felt about that. And, uh, you know, it's him and I had a lot of a lot of similarities and just in how, how we approach things in excess. Right. We don't there is no such thing as moderation in, for my in my life. And he had the same experience. And so, you know, we were talking about these ideas and I started realizing how much of my work is around dispelling these ideas about how things are supposed to be, how I'm supposed to be. And um 
I'm, I'm having like a blank spot right now. I, I had an idea that I wanted to tie this into and I, I lost well, it. I'm thinking about the game so much, I think. I just uh, wanted to uh, commend you. I, I find it very inspiring that um, in your recovery at this uh, later stage, um, you were feeling like shit and uh, you had acquired the tools to really unpack, you know, in a mindful way, the reasons for that. And it was a process over time. And like you said, you're still finding wrinkles, but like, um, you know, I, uh, I just know for a fact that there's going to be skids in my life and in my recovery. And, uh, I think I'm fortunate that I'm going through kind of a nice, um, summer of recovery right now, but there's going to be winters. And I think that some of these principles of emotional sobriety are going to be the thing that keep me tethered or give me like the, the language to find my way out. Right. Well, that I, I'm glad you said that because that brings a focus to like what I was saying earlier. And, and I had when I had this experience and, and coming to the Thursday night and being exposed to this material, the, the 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 principles of emotional sobriety and gestalt work ended up becoming an orienting force and a grounding force in in terms of how am I going to approach what's happening to me? How am I going to approach interpreting my experience? And, and, um, without that, I think I might've been in some really serious trouble. You know, I might've, I, I was, I would think I was in very serious danger of getting lost. And, and so having this idea to come back to that with these ideas and with these principles, there, it, there is a way of taking on whatever happens in your life and, and having some faith in, in myself and my ability to, to, to go through my experience of being a human being and to digest that and to, to integrate it and, and, and know what to do with stuff. And, and, and I don't have to get lost like I used to, even if I don't always know the answers, I don't have to be lost because I know just kind of general direction of where I'm going. So I appreciate you saying that. That means a lot to me. And, and, you know, having a similar story um, and relating, especially to um, having a kind of awkward and secure, um, adolescence and then how smoking weed was you know the first uh it was kind of like a a way to erase a lot of that um self-criticism and that you know um that kind of uh low self-esteem and and it was it was like a suit of armor to wear through those rough patches early in life um and then to see you sitting here now and uh you know unaided but stronger than you've ever been and, you know, kind of figuring out a, a way, you know, a way back to yourself after getting thwarted early on. I just relate to that so hard. And, uh, you know, um, it's been one of my goals of life to, you know, be able to stand uh, on my own two feet, you know, with the same assertiveness in recovery that I was when I was just a dumb, you know, weed head when I was a kid. Well, it's, it, you know, I, I had this thought too, and you just reminded me of it is I, I didn't sleep a lot last night. I probably got like, I don't know, I would guess about four hours of sleep last night and it was restless sleep. And so part of that is just, I think whenever I got something to do the next morning, I had this, I, I, I get, I get myself all worked up and I have trouble relaxing, but uh, what I did differently today that I would not have done maybe a year or two years ago. I'm able to let it be okay that I'm a little tired and a little 
disoriented because I didn't sleep last night because I'm a human being and I'm not a sleeping robot, you know? And so I'm going to have these disruptions in, in my experience and, in, in, you know, things that I need to do to take care of myself that are going to affect the way that I show up. And I, and I don't always have control over that, but what I would do before would be to come in here and to have all these ideas about how I was supposed to show up and how much energy I was supposed to have and how I was supposed to talk and be. And I would try to force myself into that and I would cause a, a subjugation of myself. And what is different today is I, I, I was sitting down waiting for this to start and I said, I'm as available as I am today. Funnily enough, when I do that, I become more available because I'm making space for myself. So it's like, again, that's what I was saying is, you know, when, you're, when I'm working with people or even just in, in personal relationships, when I don't make space for myself, um, I, I end up squeezing myself and causing a terrible experience and, and it doesn't work very well for me. Um, but again, I just wanted to tie that in because I think it's another it's another way that uh, emotional sobriety shows up for me and what it means to me in my life. And, uh, and an example of integration. Yeah, it's integration. I, I'd also describe that as self-support. Is that now you can support yourself and meaning support yourself, you know, as you are, that you don't have to be somebody else to be okay. It goes back to that theme you talked about, is that today you're able to say, hey, this is who I am and I'll do the best I can do given where I'm at right now. I don't need to be somebody different to be okay. You know, and that's what we've learned. I just need to be who I am to be okay and to be aware of it and to, and to own it and to take, take responsibility for it. I mean, that's exactly what you did. And that is the key. And people don't understand this. I, I was sharing something with somebody before. I've been reading some Rollo May. He's an existential psychotherapist, um, prolific writer, wrote a bunch of books in the 60s and 70s and stuff. And his one book on the psychology of the human dilemma just describes his very nature. He says, he says, you know, what we're all striving for is this freedom, this personal freedom. And we don't have it because our life is so determined by these experiences, these rules, the consciousness that we have from this culture that we live in, a culture of narcissism, all this personal importance that it's about me, 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 me. All that stuff just binds you up, right? It, it creates a bondage of self. There's no question about it. And what he says is, he says, in order to be free of it, he says, freedom is not the opposite of determinism. Freedom comes through accepting your determinism, accepting how your life is determined by all of these forces. And once you become aware of that, then you're able to throw your weight, however slight it might be, towards finding choices. Wow. Instead of being controlled by these forces. And he, <laughs> says, that's, he says, that's the value. And he even uses Viktor Frankl's concept. And I don't know if he, you, you, if he came to it independently or if he read Frankl's work, but he even said that we want to get in that gap between the stimulus and the response. And But we want to be able to use that gap. And this is something he added. Frankel talks about it in another way. But he says, we want to use what we learn in that gap constructively to figure out how to get to our freedom. It was wow. brilliant. I mean, once again, here's another right intersection of emotional sobriety. 
you know, we've talked about gestalt therapy. Now we can talk about Rollo May's work on existential psychotherapy. It's all so related to this whole subject. That's such an important one. I it just with, with the populations I end up working with is a lot of younger guys. And one of the things that I see the most often is, is, is these, these young guys that don't fit in well in the academic system. And this, this, the dilemma that it creates is that I don't actually have a lot of freedom over whether or not I go to, it's actually illegal not to go to school. <laughs> so you have to go and they hate it and it's torturous. And so there's this impasse that gets created if it doesn't work for me and, and how to, so the way that you just described that is such a, it's a, it's a, I, I'm going to have to do some reading on that because it's a problem I run. I see a lot. And oh, it's, it's a very specific a great, way. great way to, to think about this whole, this whole area. Well, well, I never, I just wanted to say one thing. Uh, I never ceases to amuse me how by recognizing, um, you know, by not by recognizing that you don't have to be a certain way, you know, to show up for these things paradoxically, the a higher quality self tends to show up, right? It, it's uh, by eliminating the shoulds, right? The see, it's so funny. I always thought that it, I always thought it was the opposite: is that the shoulds are going to bring me closer to perfection in the way I'm supposed to be. But it was. It's. I keep using this word. It, it's a subjugation of the self, and it's a diminishment of the self. It it's it, it shrinks who I am. It shrinks who a person is into. Some it's a poor facsimile of a person. It's a fragmented no, no. thing. Because you yeah, look right. like you look like you got eight hours, Brian. I'm just saying. Well, because I'm I I I love this stuff. I mean, I really do. I it's so important and it's so exciting because of like these things we're we're talking about the the human condition and and how this the, the, these dilemmas that we run into as people and and every I mean everybody I know experiences them in one way or another and they're very challenging to confront and to, to have an idea to orient around that. I mean, like what could be more important? <laughs> so I, but I, I know, I know what you're saying. It, it is so incredible when, when you can find some freedom, the, there, there's a different energy to it. There's a, I find, I find an excitement and a liveliness to myself when I, when I'm engaging in the way you're talking about that I don't find when I subjugate myself. Well, listen, it has been a delight having you on this show today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. I you know, and I really, real pleasure. really appreciate how, how um, open you are, how real you are, Brian. And, and I'm certain that a lot of people are going to get a lot out of listening to this. Thank you. Until next week. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. And uh, the show shall go on. Tend your life. Tinge your myth Cultivate your narrative With whomever you're with Then with glass in hand And children on one knee Bring some stories Bring your stories Back to me It ain't a crime to be a human Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing Will entertain me like nobody else So here's to us, my old friends Until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again With glass in hand and children on one knee 
bring some stories, bring your stories back to me.